0: Welcome to this special edition of American Bankruptcy Institute Podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Today's podcast is a conversation with Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, recorded at ABI's Southwest Bankruptcy Conference on September 5th in Las Vegas. Justice Stevens is interviewed by bankruptcy judges Jim Gregg and Gene Wiedhoff, two members of the ABI Board of Directors. The recording lasts about 45 minutes. We hope you enjoy this rare opportunity to hear from a member of the United States Supreme Court. Welcome to our after lunch conversation. Uh, I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director, joined by two distinguished members of our ABI Board of Directors. Uh, on my right, Judge Jim Gregg from the Western District of Michigan, and on my far left, uh, literally and figuratively, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Judge Gene Weedoff from the Northern District of Illinois. Our special guest today is Justice John Paul Stevens, uh, who has graciously agreed again to join us here at the Southwest Bankruptcy Conference. Justice Stevens is the most senior and longest serving Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, having been appointed in 1975 by President Gerald Ford. He is a native of Chicago's Hyde Park, uh, nearby the University of Chicago where he received his undergraduate degree. Uh, After graduation, he joined the Navy and served with distinction during World War II, uh, earning the Bronze Star. Returning home, he decided on a law career, earning a degree from Northwestern after just two years, graduating at the very top of his class in 1945. After a stint as a clerk to Supreme Court Justice Wiley Rutledge, a period that would influence him deeply even 60 years later, uh, he returned home to practice law at the firm that would become Jenner and Block, uh, where Judge Weedoff uh, would also later practice. In 1951, he went back to Washington to serve as a counsel to the House Judiciary Committee subcommittee dealing with monopolies, and he later developed into a prominent antitrust litigator with another Chicago firm while teaching antitrust at the University of Chicago Law School. In 1969, he was appointed to head a special commission investigating a political scandal on the Illinois Supreme Court, another transforming experience. His exemplary work led to the resignation of two members of the court who had violated the public's trust and brought him national notice. He was appointed by President Nixon to the US Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in 1970, where he served until his elevation five years later, nominated to replace Justice William O. Douglas, who had served a record 36 years on the court. In a sign of a bygone era of the Senate's advice and consent procedures, Justice Stevens was nominated on November 28th of that year and confirmed 98 to nothing within three weeks. Uh, Those were the days, I believe. Uh, We'll uh, discuss with him later the uh, implications uh, for what has become of that process. On the court, Justice Stevens has described himself as a judicial conservative. He was quoted in a New York Times profile in 2007 as saying his pretty darn conservative views haven't changed much though the justices around him have. (laughs) It is a court clearly more conservative than the one he joined in 1975. Indeed, he now finds himself the leader of what could be called the liberal opposition, filing more dissents and separate opinions than any of his colleagues, sometimes fiercely so. He's been outspoken on the need for judicial oversight of executive power and supportive of the rights of the accused most notably uh, uh, in the Hamden case, where he held that certain military tribunals at Guantanamo had had been improperly constituted. He has also become a critic of capital punishment. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. On bankruptcy matters, Justice Stevens was in the minority of a recent statutory interpretation limiting the ability of a Chapter 11 debtor to sell assets tax-free under Section 1146 where the sales occurred pre-confirmation. Now, despite growing up on Chicago's south side, uh, Justice Stevens is known to be an ardent fan of the north side Cubs. Sorry, Judge Weedoff. And is also said to have been in attendance at game three of the 1932 World Series when Babe Ruth called his famous home run shot in the fifth inning. He was a (laughs) 12-year-old. We are very delighted that you could again join us here uh, today, Justice Stevens. We we are going to have a very informal conversation, and to uh, to lead us off is Judge Gray. Uh, Justice Stevens is so
1: nice to be able to visit with you again and see you. It's always a pleasure. Um, in your biography that was mentioned by Sam, um, it was stated that you clerked at the court years ago with Justice uh, Wiley Rutledge. And what I, my question is, and I don't think I've ever asked you this, is um, first, how was the court different then? And second, what did you learn from Justice Rutledge that you still are using today in your current responsibilities?
2: Well, how is it different? Um, of course, there are nine different people on the court, and every time even one person on the court changes, the court is different, because it, uh, it, the uh, uh, dynamics of the court always change whenever the membership change. And, uh, but one of the, one thing that strikes me on the difference between the court today and the court then is that there's much more paper flying around now than there was then. Hmm. They. Uh, uh, when opinions were circulated, it, one copy was just sent to the chambers and sometimes the justice would ask me to read it or ask my co-clerk Stan Temco to read it. Sometimes he'd just read it himself and uh, send in his, his joint to the, his colleagues. But now there are three copies that go to every chambers and there are more paper comments back and forth. The amount of paper that is, full, that is exchanged is significantly greater than it was when I was a law clerk. And perhaps one of the reasons is that the law clerks, I think, have a greater role to play today than the law clerks did uh, when I was a clerk. Uh, most of the judge, my, my impression, I know Justice Rutledge wrote all his own opinions in longhand. I shouldn't say all, with the exception of one or two. He sometimes allowed uh, uh, either Stan or me to draft a first draft, uh, and, and he also asked us to edit and make comments on the opinions. But, but the judge, he, he wrote them all out in longhand, and then he'd have them typed up and sometimes ask us to check some footnotes or make additions or suggestions. But there was a, it was a more, uh, the judges were more in command of every detail in the office uh, than I think is true now. And as I say, the thing I think about is the, is the uh, uh, difference in the quantity of paper.
3: Well, one of the things that uh, you, you mentioned just a second ago is this change in the court with the change in personnel. And what I wonder is what qualities in your colleagues have you found most valuable? And what do you think a president should be looking for in, in terms of qualities in choosing nominees to the Supreme Court?
2: Well, I think the uh, uh, principal quality is he should be a good lawyer, and uh, I think most of our presidents have concentrated on getting uh, uh, excellent uh, lawyers on the bench, and uh, I think that is a a particularly important qualification. Justice
0: uh, Finley uh, Peter Dunn's Mr. Dooley uh, famously and when observed and was probably accurate apropos of this uh, question back in uh, 1901, that the Supreme Court follows the election returns, and we 're about to have obviously a presidential election this week there's a uh, there 's a new uh, Christopher Buckley novel out uh, that I think you've uh, that I think you 've read Supreme courtship: a satirical look at the court nomination uh, process where he points out that nothing raises the national temperature more than a vacancy sign uh, hanging from the colonnaded front of the Supreme Court, and that's probably true. Now, it's widely expected that the next president, no matter uh, who it is, will have at least one nomination to the court. Now, this process has certainly changed, uh, certainly from Justice Rutledge's time, and and even in your time, and even from the mid-1980s when I was a young uh, staff person on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, I was there during uh, Judge Bork and Clarence Thomas, and uh, and even since then, uh, both uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito, most recently, uh, were threatened by Senate filibusters before they were ultimately being confirmed. Now, I'm not particularly optimistic about where this process is headed, uh, uh, but I'm very curious about your uh, views of the of the process and where it might be headed. Having watched the process for more than 30 years, do you have, are you more optimistic? Do you have hope that the process becoming less of a kind of national political spectacle?
2: Well, the, the principal difference between uh, the process now and the process when I went through it is that it was not televised when I went through mm-hmm. it. I am the last member of the court right. who went through before right. a television played a role in the proceedings. That's right, Justice O'Connor in 1981. She, 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 her hearings yeah. were televised. And I remember watching uh, David Souter's <laughs> hearings, and the first day was taken up with statements by the members of the committee about how important the hearings were.
0: Sorry sorry about that.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And that took up a- Did I look okay? (laughs) Sitting behind the guy? When when I went through the process, um, the attorney general, uh, Edward Levy, and the senator from Illinois, Chuck Percy, uh, introduced me to the committee. It took them about, I don't know, a minute, two minutes to introduce me. And uh, I guess Adlai Stevenson said a couple of words too. And then they started questioning me. And the questions that were asked are really very similar to the questions that are asked uh, today, Uh, but they weren't televised. But nevertheless, they did go into all sorts of details that uh, I at the time thought maybe were were directed at the people back home rather than at trying to find out what was my views were on various issues. But they covered the waterfront. They asked me about uh, uh, what most most of the issues that were before the court and the
0: like, and, and uh, the question was very similar. Should nominees be required to announce positions in advance on, on issues that might likely come before the court? No, I don't think so. I, because I
2: think the, the,
0: and I had this, this concern
2: at the time, the, the, one of the major issues was uh, the constitutionality of capital punishment. And uh, I remember that uh, during the period when I went around and met uh, members of the Senate who wanted to get uh, acquainted with me, before, just meet me briefly before the hearings began, Uh, I was uh, asked, I I, I remember when I went to see Strom Thurmond and Senator McClellan of uh, uh, Arkansas, each of them asked uh, uh, me to come into his office and talk about the death penalty. Well, he wanted to talk to me in private. And then they said, when I got in the private uh, chambers or uh, office, each of them was almost this, precisely the same scenario said, Judge Stevens, I wanna talk to you about the death penalty. And each said, I wanna tell you how I feel about it, but I'm not gonna ask you how you feel about it because that would be highly improper. Mm. And so neither of them asked me those views. And the reason they didn't, and and I had other uh, issues that might have been relevant, is uh, until you have had an issue argued out before you, you really have to keep an open mind about the alternatives and I really didn't know how I would, would vote on it until the arguments were presented. I think it would be highly improper to ask a nominee how he's gonna vote on an upcoming issue when he hasn't had the case argued and had a chance to think about the pros and cons, because there's a world of difference between your casual impression of how you might react to an, to an issue and how you, in fact, come down and vote after it's been argued. So I, I would definitely oppose any uh, uh, requirement that a, a prospective justice be asked to indicate how he would vote on, on a, an issue in the future.
3: You know, I, I think because of your remark about the impact that television had on the uh, confirmation process, I have to ask you if you think it would be a good idea to have uh, televised federal court proceedings either at the bankruptcy court level or the Supreme Court level?
2: Well, with respect to the Supreme Court level, uh, I often think about, I remember going to a Redskin game several years ago, and I noticed that the players, all of a sudden, there's a period they're standing around on the field, there wasn't a timeout, but no action. And then somebody said, well, that's a TV timeout because they're having commercials. And what happens is when you introduce television into an area that it hasn't been before, things change you may not realize there'll be certain little changes and maybe they'll be good and maybe they'll be bad, but you don't really know until you try. And with respect to the proceedings in the court, our arguments really are a very important part of the process and the present practice works very well. Maybe it would also work well with television in the background and maybe it wouldn't. But I think most of my colleagues feel very strongly that we shouldn't take a chance that there'd be a temptation on the part of lawyers and perhaps on part of members of the bench to make ask questions or, or, or get into colloquies that are not strictly necessary to developing the argument, but yet might play on TV. And you don't really know what would happen. And we have a very important process that now functions pretty well. And I think there's a, a lot of wisdom in the notion if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So uh, I think most members of the court feel very strongly that we should not uh, uh, make that change. I must confess, I've gone back and forth on it because there is an educational value in seeing how the court operates. And I know I've had many people who are guests who've attended the arguments and have expressed surprise at how thoroughly the justices were really prepared and really on top of the issues. And so there would be a healthy benefit if the world at large was a little more familiar with the fact the judges really are prepared in almost every case before it, before it occurs. So there are pros and cons on it, but I would not hold my breath until the court decides to. <laughs> there,
0: is a, there is a fair amount of uh, styling for cameras that goes on and I can say that as um, I was a staff person when the Senate went to televise Senate proceedings yes. and it was a remarkable change for one thing, Uh, senators dressed better Uh, they were (laughs) they were instructed uh, you know blue shirt uh, not wild patterns like this tie for example Uh, you know a red tie Uh, and the other thing that happened was uh, in terms of styling for the audience was uh, suddenly there emerged props uh, charts and uh, visuals uh, which, of course, would never need, be needed before that, because there's only two people in the Senate
3: yeah.
0: uh, during any proceeding. Yeah. And so now, uh, the chart makers, you know, were working overtime preparing these audiovisual displays, which were entirely, you know, aimed at, you know, a, a television uh, consumption audience. So, so I think you're spot on on the uh, sensitivity to what might yeah. what might happen with television.
1: I'd like to uh, return to the all the paperwork you were talking about, and a little bit later I want to get into the death penalty on a recent case. But on the paperwork, uh, I want to focus on the oral communication between the judges and deliberations. Um, On the Sixth Circuit bankruptcy appellate panel, which I'm uh, pleased to serve on, I know Judge Rhodes is in our audience, he's on that panel too. We'll have pre-argument conferences, and then we'll hear argument, and we'll have post-argument conferences, where we actually vote and decide who's gonna write the opinion and those things. Uh, and every once in a while, we'll have, we have a rule that if we wanna talk about the case any more fully, that all three of us on the panel are on the line on a telephone conference at the same time. So my, my question to you is I'm, I am familiar a little bit with the post-argument conferences, I think typically on a Friday but do you have any pre-argument conferences, and do you ever have instances when the justices individually or collectively discuss cases that are taken under advisement?
2: Well, of course, there are cases uh, uh, situations in which there are conversations between different justices before uh, oral argument. But I think the practice, and I don't want to offend your your bankruptcy panel, but I think the practice of pre-argument conferences as a formal matter by all members of the court is a highly undesirable practice. Because I think it allows the judges to pretty much make up their minds as a unit without the participation of the lawyers. And I think oral argument is and should be a very important part of the deliberation of an appellate, uh, multi-judge appellate court. And if you get together ahead of time and pretty much you all agree on certain aspects of the case, that's apt to decide the case before the lawyers have had a chance to be heard in full. And I don't think that's the way an appellate court functions best. I know they do that in the Ninth Circuit and Judge Kaczynski is opposed to it and I strongly thought that was right, wrong. And I think we do not, have anything like that. We do on occasion say, incidentally, this case is coming up, have you read such and such a case? Or something like that. That may happen. And, and there may be discussions, uh, particularly when there are requests for additional time or an amicus wants to argue or something like that, where we ha- have to uh, talk about, about a case in advance. But, but my own practice, and I, I can't speak for all of my colleagues, but my own practice is, is to try to make up my own mind as best I can and and, keep an, uh, and leave open an opportunity to decide whether the lawyers are gonna come up with something I haven't thought about.
1: Well, how often at oral argument, and, and I don't want a number or percentage, but is it um, not uncommon for you to perhaps leave the bench, reflect on oral argument, and then look at things in a different way? maybe change your mind it happens more often than you would think i can't i can't
2: give you a number but there are many cases over the years that i've, I've been there in which the oral argument has significantly affected not only my views of the case but the views of the whole court sometimes it, it brings up an, a, a basis for decision that is different than you thought would be appropriate sometimes some, they point out something in the record nobody had actually focused on because the briefing might, might not have been complete. All sorts of things can happen uh, while the case is in process. And it is by no means true that the case has been decided before the argument uh, takes place. And, and I really think that, that the leave, leaving as much uh, opportunity for f- further deliberation as possible before the argument is, is an important part of the process.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate your comments, especially about the pre-argument conferences. Yeah. And although I'm off the BAP, uh, thank God. I, I, yeah. Judge Rhodes yeah. is still on it, yeah. so he can take it back to
0: the panel. Yeah. Um, maybe uh, turning to uh, the sort of lifestyle of, uh, of the Supreme Court justice in particular, many appellate court justices speak of Feeling isolated uh, on the bench, they don't have a lot of outside contact. They don't they don't come to conferences like this. This room, there's a dozen bankruptcy judges here, interacting, learning, uh, commingling with with folks that doesn't happen uh, to appellate court judges. They have a, a, a an insular lifestyle. Do you do you find that uh, to be the case, um, particularly at the Supreme Court level?
2: You know, it's interesting. Lewis Powell used to talk about that. He used to say how different his life was on the bench than it had been in, uh, uh, when he was in private practice. I haven't really found that to be true. Mm-hmm. I have the same basic circle of friends and mm-hmm. engage in the same basic activities I did before. And uh, uh, I enjoy the fact that we are not uh, public figures in the sense that people follow us around and question us and all that sort of thing. But, uh, but I don't really uh, think that the, uh, from my own personal point of view, that the life of a, an appellate judge is that much different from the life of a lawyer, with two or three exceptions. Big changes, when I went on the bench, I did not have to do timesheets anymore. <laughs> That's think. a huge uh, <laughs> come on. And, and I also didn't have to travel as much, mm-hmm. and I didn't have the telephone calls at all at a, a different times. You had there. there a little more. You had a little more control over your personal life. I mean, you're on a judge than you do in in private practice.
1: I take but it you don't have a BlackBerry.
2: I do not have a BlackBerry. <laughs> I do not have a BlackBerry. No.
3: Well, I'm gonna uh, switch to a substantive question and I'm here to make a challenge to everybody in the audience because I believe that you are the author of the single most cited bankruptcy decision in the history of bankruptcy law in the United States. And that decision is Butner versus United States, which when I looked it up this morning, had been cited 5,374 times. 64 times more than when I last looked it up on July 24. So this is a case that not only, it's gonna be 30 years old in February, not only has generated the most citations, but continues continues to be cited all the time. I wanted to congratulate you on your persuasiveness, but, uh, but also to ask you, the issue in that case was whether bankruptcy law or state law controlled the question of an interest in rents that came out of a security agreement. An interest in what? Rents, uh, whether, oh, whether rent. there's a yeah, security right. interest in, in the rents that were generated by a piece of real property. Right. And what you held was that there's no federal common law of bankruptcy that answers that question. It's gotta be answered by state law. And, and in general, state law governs unless there's a bankruptcy policy that goes the other way. I just wonder what, what recollections you might have about that case and what your reaction is to uh, what's turned out to be its prominence.
2: Well, I had I had no idea. I know the case has been cited a lot, but. I don't think it really announced any revolutionary <laughs> principle of law. I, it was, I, I think if I remember correctly, uh, it, that uh, I think I remember working on the draft during a, 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 a recess when I was in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know why, why I happen to remember it. But I think all we basically held was that, as is true with the term property under the, in the 14th Amendment, when interpreting section 1983 and civil rights cases and the like, that the source of property interest is state law. And we simply applied that simple proposition to the uh, same issue in, in most bankruptcy courts. So I don't think it was a revolutionary decision at all. I think maybe it was a black letter line out of a horn book or something like that, <laughs> that, uh, that it cited all that much. But uh, I, 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 was it a unanimous opinion? Uh, yes, it was. I think it, I, So I don't think it was thought to be a very difficult case, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it was. <laughs>
1: well, I want to turn to a substantive case that's uh, more difficult, and it's the death penalty case coming out of Kentucky in the last term, and it's Bayes versus Rees. And um, I don't want to revisit it or go into the analysis. but. Um, I had the pleasure of listening to your remarks in Chattanooga at the Sixth Circuit Judicial Conference. And you had made some remarks then about the death penalty. There's also an article I read by Linda Greenhouse that I I have with me about, it's something like, after 32 long years, Justice Stevens makes the journey on the death penalty. And in in the case, you, uh, you concurred with the result because you followed precedent but you did make some comments, uh, your personal observations on the death penalty. I think that many of the attendees uh, may not have heard that, and I think they're noteworthy. Would you like to share that at all with us, please? What is the question? The question question is, I'll, I'll put it this way, why have you changed your views on the death penalty from the case you, uh, in 1976, it was jerk versus Texas, well, to Jim, the concurrence in the base case. Jim, you
2: have to draw a very basic and simple distinction. I have not changed my views on the death penalty. The question is whether I've changed my views on the constitutionality of the death penalty. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anybody on the court who was an enthusiastic supporter of the death penalty. There is a difference in the, in the court on the question of whether it is, is constitutional or not. And uh, there's, uh, a number of things have happened over, over the years, but, but one of the basic problems in an Eighth Amendment case is how you look at the Eighth Amendment. Do you, the, it prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Now, everybody would agree I think the death penalty is cruel. The question is whether it's unusual within the meaning of the Eighth Amendment. And there are two ways to approach that issue. Some people will look at it and say, was it unusual at the time the Constitution adopted it, or was it unusual today? Mm -hmm. And one view is that there have been evolving standards of civilized approach to questions of punishment and the like. And that has been the majority view of the court, that the question of whether it's unusual or not, and therefore excessive, changes over time. One view is that the penalty was, if it was appropriate in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries to execute 12 and 13 year old uh, children, that's still appropriate, The, the law does not change. But there are a lot of, the dominant view interpreting the Eighth Amendment has been to the contrary, that evolving standards of decency and approach to problems of that kind affect the uh, decision on whether it is now uh, cruel and unusual. Now, the opinion I, opinions I helped author back in 1976 were, were they were some 30 years ago, and a lot of things have happened in the in the interval. And one of the questions, is not only the vertical change in time, is also what is the breadth of of the uh, coverage you look at to decide whether it's unusual. Do you just look at the states in which it is authorized or do you look in a broader view? And in my own, my own view, and I know it's a very controversial view, I think that the experience in the rest of the world mm-hmm. is relevant to your determination of whether a particular punishment is unusual or not. And of course, the United States stands virtually alone in, in having this punishment as part of our law. And I think if you think it's appropriate to consider broader parts of our civilization, it's appropriate to recognize that there's been a trend and that it is appropriate to take that into consideration. And it was a a very difficult decision in my my own part, but I have actually have come to the conclusion that the better view would be that that we should follow the the views of of most of the Western, uh, Western world on this issue. And one of the things that actually caused me to to face up to it was the draft of the very very fine opinion the Chief Justice wrote in the case in which he stressed the importance of not allowing any uh, 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 improper pain to attend the uh, execution in question. And of course, one of the main justifications for the death penalty is the retribution you want to get even with the with the, uh, the defendant for the ter- uh, ter- terrible things he's done uh, to uh, to the victim. But if you're going out of your way to make sure he isn't going through any pain during the process, you have to stop and think. Well, what's the rationale here? Who's what is actually driving this this penalty? If you're just trying to save the, the, this uh, criminal for from, uh, from any pain. And in, in this particular instance, of course, there are other ways that are well established of, of imposing very severe punishment and keeping him out of society so he or she will not perform the same act again. Sure. So that the, the function of, of protecting society from, from repetition that you do not need the death penalty for that. And of course, it does not serve the function of, uh, of uh, reformation or causing the defendant to perform better in society. The purposes underlying it are, are much more difficult to justify than it, than it seems to me uh, uh, should, uh, should be there. And one other fact, and I didn't really intend to go into this much detail, but uh, there have been in, in, in the uh, death penalty litigation is terribly expensive. It's a terrible burden on the federal judiciary and on the judiciary in the states in which it is, which it is carried out. And in the administration of the death penalty where you make sure that the jurors are qualified to, uh, to impose the death penalty, the, the selection process tends to produce juries that are pro-conviction because there, if you took a total cross-section of society, you would pick up a fair number of people who could not not administer the death penalty. But in any event, it's, it's, it's something I've thought about a great deal uh, over the years, and I have uh, come to the conclusion that as of today, the better view would be to say that this is not a constitutional form of punishment. But I have not changed my views about the punishment itself. And I don't think, uh, my colleagues in 1976 felt the same and it just as Warren Burger, for example, many, many times said he personally was opposed to the death penalty. Harry Blackmun said the same thing. But they thought as a matter of, of proper interpretation of the Constitution, they had a duty to uphold it. So I just have to bear, bear in mind that there is a vast distinction between whether or not it is
0: today constitutional and whether or not it's a good idea. Let me ask a follow-up, if I could, on that uh, same uh, issue. Justice Robert Jackson famously said of the court that we're not final because we're infallible, uh, but we are infallible only because we are final. And it's not often, in fact, that the court is asked by a party, a state, or the federal government to reconsider uh, a, a matter, a decision, because of a missing key evidence, and that, in fact, has emerged in the case decided just last term, and it was a death penalty case. Uh, Kennedy versus Louisiana uh, decided in June. The case held unconstitutional, a state law, uh, authorizing capital punishment for the rape of a child under the age of 12. Justice Kennedy's five to four majority opinion relied on what he viewed as a national trend away from capital punishment in child rape cases uh, an affirmation of what he called and what you've referred to as an evolving standard of decency now the problem comes with the court's understanding perhaps of the basic facts one of which no party raised um, and that is in two thousand and six. Maybe we can save a little time. <laughs> let me tell you that you can't say there's a petition for
2: rehearing pending. I'm going to ask that. Relying on the very point you're making, and so I won't really be able to respond to whatever question you intend to ask.
0: But but let me just ask you. <laughs> let me just ask you theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a confirmation hearing all over again. Um, what I mean, this has happened a couple dozen times, where the court has had a rehearing after new evidence has been. What What is What is the thought process? Name, name one case.
2: Through? Name one case.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, you, you're saying it's never happened. No, I'm not saying
2: that. I said, what case do you have in mind? <laughs>
3: <laughs> he, he needs to have some I specific I, think, I have a really yeah, good boy. question here <laughs> I want to I change entirely get out of the law and into literature because uh, a little birdie told me this morning that you were quite a fan of Shakespeare and so I thought I'd first ask you about your uh, attitude and approach to Shakespeare and then ask you if you had a favorite play you might share with us
2: Well, uh, <laughs> There are so many that you you admire. Of course, Hamlet is one of the greatest plays that's ever written, And, and Measure for Measure, as we talked earlier, I think is a great play too. But one of the interesting questions with Ray Shakespeare is whether he really wrote those plays. It's something that it Would bear very careful study. Do
3: you have an opinion on that that you've expressed before?
2: <laughs> I, I have two opinions that I've expressed. before. <laughs> one, the first opinion that I expressed about 20 years ago, is that they could that one could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that um, Shakespeare was not the author. Mm. But I've also expressed the opinion that if you rely on the preponderance of the evidence, uh, I have come to the to the tentative opinion that he probably did not write the opinion, uh, write the plays, and that Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, is more likely the actual author.
3: And why would de Vere not have taken credit for his work? Why would, what? Why would he not have taken credit for his work? Uh,
2: Well, there are all sorts of reasons. One, uh, he may have died before he intended to, and, uh, <laughs> and he died in, in, in 1605, and in, it, uh, and in, and he was uh, well. It's it's uh, this is a a, a a really a complicated subject, but uh, it was not popular for members of the nobility at that time to associate with people in the theater. The theater was a place where you go with bullfights and or bear, bear bear fighting and one thing or another and the, the nobility uh, were, were not supposed to associate with the kind of people that were in the theater, uh, plus the fact that, uh, in many view, some of the plays as a form of propaganda, uh, uh, establishing the, the importance of the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Tudor uh, line, and so forth but it's much too, too detailed <laughs> to cover in a few minutes.
1: Okay. Well, I'm gonna change uh, gears a little bit too. Uh, two years ago when you are here in Las Vegas, uh, Sam and I had the pleasure of uh, playing golf with you, but uh, all of you should know, some of you may have been here a couple of years ago, it was over 100 degrees. and So we played 18 holes of golf and you barely wilted. And so my, my question is, what secrets do you have to, to be able to do this? I'm dragging and sweating like crazy, and you're just saying, let's play more.
2: Well, uh, who knows? I, 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 I've been fortunately blessed with good health, and, and uh, I think the secret to that, if you know, want to know what the real secret is, marry a beautiful dietitian. <laughs>
3: Well, if we're gonna go back to substance again, uh, (laughs) let let me ask you a question that uh, I've had some, it actually ties in with literature too. What we're asked to do time and time again as judges is interpret ambiguous writings. It could be in a constitution, a statute, a treaty, uh, an earlier opinion, is there any substantial difference in the approach that a judge should take to interpreting ambiguous writing depending on what context the writing occurs in?
2: Well, the basic question is, do you pay more attention to text or do you also look at the purpose behind the the particular rule? And uh, there are, it it overlaps a little bit like the Eighth Amendment question I had mentioned in the uh, Uh, talking about the death penalty. But um, maybe I can just mention a little on my personal background two things that affected my own thinking. When I was in service during World War II, my job was, my primary job, I was involved in communications intelligence. And my primary uh, uh, responsibility for most of the time I was stationed in Pearl Harbor. We were intercepting uh, Japanese communications and trying to get intelligence out of them. And my work was generally uh, analyzing the messages without being able to read them. You get all sorts of information by studying who is communicating with whom, what kind of codes they use, what frequencies they use, and so on, and so on, and so on. And I remember one day, uh, one evening, I guess I came on watch, and my predecessor told me that there, a message had come in. In which the battleship, the call sign for the battleship Musashi, had been associated with several uh, Japanese naval installations on the island of Truk in the Central Pacific, where the Japanese had a major major naval base, and that having the battleship associated with that particular base really was very unusual and signaled something that was very serious might be going on. And so he had sent out a, a bulletin, which in turn was, was distributed to the fleet. And when I got on, he told me about it and said, watch for more messages on. And about an hour later, we got another copy of the same message. Often the messages will be uh, rebroadcast over and over again throughout the, to be received in all parts of the Japanese Navy. And the thing that happened was that the call sign had been garbled. And the Musashi was not the Musashi, it was the director of the base for personnel director on Truck Island, perfectly normal association. But I remember it as a dramatic mistake that that he jumped to a conclusion based on one copy of a message. And the lesson I learned out of that is, sometimes people don't say exactly what they mean. Words are not always (laughs) communicated with perfect clarity. Garbles, is, of course, is an obvious, obvious uh, example. And another example that was similar to that that affected my thinking about how you interpret, answer the interpretive questions, occurred when I was uh, associate counsel to the House Judiciary Committee. I remember explaining in some length to one of the members of the committee some of the intricacies of the newly, the new statute of limitations governing antitrust uh, trouble, damage litigation. When the statute's pulled, and when when it wasn't, when how much what, how much time is left under the statute? Rather, limitations pres- questions can be pretty difficult. And after explaining it to him at some length and why I thought the statute ought to be clarified, he, he leaned back and said, "Well, you know, I think we let the judges figure that one out." <laughs> and the, the lesson from that is that the actual draftsmen of the legislation often don't try to do a completely comprehensive job. They sometimes have to leave details for further uh, working out during the process of litigation. And so, because they cannot foresee all of the uh, applications that may show up. So I think, that, I think that it's a mistake to figure that just because the language seems to be perfectly clear, that, that it does accurately and fairly reflect what the uh, draftsman intended and i think that judges should be careful to try and figure out what was exactly behind the entire statute whenever they're interpreting particular uh, provisions of it i know there's a fear that if they start doing that the judges will impose their own views rather than the views of the uh, of the legislators but that has not been my experience on the bench and in general I think that judges who do the kind of analysis that I'm talking about here really are trying to figure out what the Congress meant in those cases, and they're trying to do it conscientiously by looking at all the materials that are available. And it does not seem wise to me to refuse to look at matter that may help you get the answer to those questions. And so I, I tend to say, I, I, I always start with the language of the statute, but I always think Somebody might have goofed. There may have been a mistake in, in uh, actually expressing what they intended to express. So I think it, I really think the, the better view is to make as thorough a study as you can before you come to a conclusion. Because I think you have to trust the good faith of the judges as trying to do their job conscientiously. And my experience is, as a, just so I'm sure about all of you, you do the best you can. You're not trying to put on some personal agenda. When you come up with a view, view that's somewhat inconsistent with seems to
1: be the text, were were you just giving us a coded message about the new bankruptcy
0: amendments? Yes, <laughs> I was, we were going to say legislative imprecision is never a problem with the bankruptcy code. Yeah. <laughs> you mean it, it, it's characteristic <laughs> of the code? Uh, the, yeah. the,
1: the new amendments are very hard to understand, and we're we're all this whole room is trying to wrestle with those new amendments. We have.
3: Any number of opinions, but there's one opinion that we hold unanimously, and that, the, uh, and that is that the 2005 legislation was not beautifully
0: drafted. I, I, you know much more about that, than I do, <laughs> that's for sure. We want to uh, thank Justice Stevens for being so generous with his time again uh, this year to be uh, to be with us, and we wish him uh, all the best of uh, uh, luck and continued great health and service uh, to America on the Supreme Court. Thank you very much.